So Luke chapter 23, reading from the first verse. Then the whole assembly rose and led Jesus off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted, He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. With one voice they cried out, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Father, thank you for your words to us this morning. May our hearts and minds be open and attentive to your voice. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so you'll remember if you've been sort of with us the last few weeks or if you've been sort of catching up online, we're sort of in this, in this sort of period where Jesus has said at, uh, in um, previous chapter, chapter 22, verse 53, uh, Jesus says, this is your hour when darkness reigns. So this is, as I've said the last couple of weeks, Jesus is the light of the world, a light to the Gentiles, the light that can never be overcome. And yet we're in this season of, uh, of darkness. I don't know if you remember... Um, if you've watched The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, there's that, that sort of, you know, period where, where, you know, the white witch seems to have the, you know, the upper hand and Aslan has been, you know, condemned to death and is, and is being hauled off. And there's, this, there's that period where it looks as if, you know, the white witch has won her great victory. And this is a season where darkness seems to reign and uh, Jesus is, is on his own. He's been betrayed by his closest friends, let down by his 
greatest friend, uh, Jesus, is being mocked by the guards. And, and, and it seems as if darkness is reigning. And we're sort of in the middle of that um, season. And here at the beginning of chapter 23, the whole assembly, the Jewish assembly, lead him off to Pilate because the Jews want to get rid of Jesus, but they have no authority uh, to have him crucified. If they're going to have him killed, they've got to find a politician who will do it for them. Uh, and so they haul Jesus off to Pilate. And it's interesting that the, the accusations that they make against Jesus are political. Because they know the only reason that they're going to get him killed is if they can find a political reason for doing so. They, realize, they know that if they go to the, you know, the, the Roman authorities with a religious, you know, a religious dispute, the Roman authorities are not going to be interested. And so they come with this accusation. We found this man subverting our nation. Uh, he opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. Because they know that's going to get the political authorities, um, you know, he's subverting the nation. He's uh, saying people shouldn't pay their taxes to Caesar. He's claiming to be a king. Uh, that's going to get Pilate's um, interest. Uh, and we know that it's, it's also twisted, isn't it? Because we know that Jesus hasn't said anything of the kind. If you remember back in chapter 20 when uh, they're trying to catch Jesus with a trick and they bring him a denarius and they say, you know, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus says, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Yes, you should pay your taxes. But here's the accusation. Uh, he's subverting the nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar. He's twist, they're twisting Jesus's words and uh, accusing him of wanting to subvert the nation, accusing him of wanting to be a king. And uh, obviously any rumour of a rival king to Pilate, to Herod, to Caesar, that's not going to go down well. So this is the accusation. And so often that's the way that it goes. When, when the gospel is being attacked, uh, so often the, the accusation is, it's a kind of a twisting of the truth. Uh, in our, you know, in our, you know, the current culture in which we live, the church is being attacked and assaulted all the time. And so often when you look at the accusations, uh, they're, a, they're a misunderstanding or they're a deliberate misunderstanding or they're a, a twisting of something that we believe. And so we are um, attacked, uh, you know, attacked with it. I was just, you know, just one of the very obvious things, you know, at the moment, you know, as, as a, you know, as, as a Christian who trusts in God's word and believes in God's word, I, you know, will proclaim very openly that I believe, you know, marriage is for, you know, between one man and one woman to the exclusion of all others. Uh, till death us depart. That's the biblical definition of marriage. One man, one woman, to the exclusion of all others, it's a lifelong commitment. Anything outside of that, uh, it, it, whatever you want to call it, it's not a marriage. And if you declare that, then immediately the accusation comes back. Well, then you're intolerant and you're homophobic. And um, well, none of those things are, are true. You know, homophobia is about fear. You know, fear of same-sex relationships but that's not true I hope none of us are afraid of same-sex relationships I have friends who are in same-sex relationships it's not not to do with fear it's not to do with intolerance it's about believing that there's a God who has revealed himself revealed his will for our lives in scripture that's just an obvious example there are so many other things where accusations against us become less than true they're uh, you know, they're, they're, they're twisted. And that's what's happening to, to Jesus here. These are false accusations. Uh, 
And uh, I, I was reading um, a few weeks ago a guy that I follow on Facebook. Um, he's a pastor in uh, New York, Tim Keller, who's um, just a wonderful apologist for the Christian faith. One of my favourite books is his book, uh, The Reason for Faith, where he just, he just explains why the Christian faith makes so much sense. But he wrote a thing um, a few months ago about, you know, if you, if you disagree with someone and you're in a dispute with someone, often what, often what happens is you, you kind of present their argument, you sort of rubbish it, you present their argument in the worst possible light. Uh, and he says, actually, if you're in a dispute with someone, you should, present, you should present what they're saying in such a way that they would say, yes, that's exactly, that's exactly what I think and why I think it. He says, you shouldn't try to rubbish someone else's argument. You should try to present it in a way in which they would say, yes, that's brilliant. That's exactly what I believe. And then you present why you disagree with it and why you have a different, you know, different standpoint. And I just found that really, really helpful. Because so often when you get into a dispute, you, you try and rubbish the other person. And Tim, Tim Keller says, no, look at their argument. Try to present it in the best possible way. And then explain why you disagree with it. So you can actually have a conversation about what you're disagreeing with rather than chucking things at each other, which is so often what, you know, so often what happens. And that's why I love his book, The Reason for Faith, because he basically takes all these accusations that are thrown at Christians. And he says, yeah, I I get that. I completely understand why you believe that. Now, this is why I believe what I believe, because it makes sense. So anyway, Jesus is, uh, you know, when he's, and this is really, really important and we'll come on to this a bit more in a moment. When he goes to the cross, he goes as an innocent man. And everyone knows it. Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, yes. Uh, and so Pilate then says, well, I find no basis for a charge against this man. Interesting that, that, that Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? That's kind of okay. It's okay for Jesus to be king of the Jews. That doesn't threaten Pilate. If Jesus had said, if Pilate said, are you the king of Judea? Is that who you want to be? And Jesus had said, yes, that would have been a whole different ballgame. Because then the political authority would have been being threatened. That would not have gone down well. But Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, yes, it's as you say. Pilate says, I find no basis for a charge against this. It's like, I'm not interested. This is your you know, religious dispute. You know, go away and work it out amongst yourselves. Uh, uh, he's not bothered that Jesus claims to be the Jews, but they insist he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean, and when he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod. Pilate's trying to dodge the bullet here. Pilate thinks, aha, if this is under Herod's jurisdiction, Herod can deal with it. I don't want to get involved. I'll pack him off to Herod and let Herod sort it out. Interesting little kind of footnote in here that um, Jesus gets sent off to Herod because uh, Herod is uh, descended from the Edomites. The Edomites are descended from Esau. And if you know your Old Testament, you'll know that there's this dispute between Jacob and Esau and Jacob steals Esau's birthright twice. Uh, Jacob becomes Israel, the father of the Israelite nation. Um, Esau goes off and becomes the father of the Edomites. And there's this constant rivalry between Jacob and Esau. And there's a, just a little um, uh, reference back in Genesis chapter 27 that after Jacob has twice stolen 
uh, his Esau's birthright, Esau has a grudge against Jacob and wants to kill him. And uh, we read in Genesis 27, verse 41, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, uh, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. So there's this, this kind of rivalry and revenge. And it rolls down the generations and it rolls down the centuries. And here we have Herod, a descendant of Esau, who now has Jesus in front of him. And this, this kind of rivalry is still being worked out hundreds of years later. So Pilate thinks he can get himself off the hook. He packs Jesus off to Herod. And Herod is delighted because Herod has been fascinated by Jesus. Uh, we read, from what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. Again, another little footnote. How does, where does Herod getting his information from? About Jesus. How is Herod hearing these stories about Jesus? Well, back in Luke chapter 8, we read this. Uh, Jesus travelled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, uh, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. There's some very, very significant uh, followers of Jesus. We tend to kind of look at the disciples and, you know, they're a kind of ragtag bunch of, you know, fishermen and, uh, you know, the, the rest of it. But actually there's some followers of Jesus from the very highest places in society. And one of them is Joanna, the wife of Chusa, who's the manager of Herod's household. He's like one of the most important people in society and in the political world. And his wife is one of Jesus' closest supporters. So Joanna is travelling around with Jesus, watching what he's doing, listening to him teach. And she's going home to Chusa and telling her husband, wow, you should have seen what Jesus did today. And then Chusa is spending time with Herod and saying, you know this guy Jesus who's going around Judea, this is, you know, he's, he's healing people and casting out. So this is where Herod is getting his information from. And he's fascinated. He's fascinated by Jesus, but he doesn't understand who Jesus is. He's like, he's like, he's like greatly pleased. For a long time he'd been wanting to see him. He hoped to see him perform some miracle. It's like some, you know, Victorian circus act. He's like, wow, this guy, is, I want to go and see this guy for myself. But he's not actually interested in really learning who Jesus is, uh, which is why Jesus says nothing. Herod plies him with many questions. Jesus gave him no answer. Jesus isn't going to play along. You know, I guess when you're, when you're the God of the universe, sometimes you don't have to say anything. You can just sit tight. And Jesus isn't going to play. He isn't going to play this game. Sometimes, sometimes we, you come across people who have lots of questions about the Christian faith and lots of questions about Jesus. But you just sense actually they're not, they're not really interested. They're just looking for an argument or they're just looking for a way to, to kind of bat it down. And sometimes you come across people who are genuinely interested and who have a hunger and thirst you know, for God. And, and those of you you really want to kind of engage with, but sometimes you just feel with, people just aren't interested. 
And actually, you don't almost know, don't need to give a response because they're not interested in hearing the answer. And Herod, he isn't really interested in finding out who Jesus is. He just wants to see a miracle. And Jesus isn't going to entertain him. So Jesus is in front of Pilate, is in front of Herod, and now we have the chief priests and the teacher. Imagine what it's like for Jesus. He's literally on his own, being accused by everyone. His friends have disappeared. Uh, the religious leaders, who are supposed to be the gatekeepers of, uh, for the Messiah, have rejected him and turned against him. They're hurling accusations at him. And now Herod isn't getting what he wants, and so he loses patience. Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. They dressed him in an elegant robe and sent him back to Pilate. So Herod just gives up. Again, another little interesting um, fulfilment of Old Testament prophecy in verse 12. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Just something about the, just the presence of Jesus, even in the midst of all this, bringing about reconciliation uh, between enemies. Psalm 2 begins with these words. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. The rulers gather together against the Lord and his anointed one. And here that prophecy is fulfilled as Herod and Pilate become friends and oppose Jesus. Pilate calls together the chief priests the rulers of the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence. I find no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Now, as I said before, a few moments ago, this is, this is really important. When Jesus is sent to the cross, everyone is in agreement that he's an innocent man. They all know that he's he's innocent. The religious leaders who take him, you know, they know that he's done nothing of deserving death. In the other gospel accounts, we read that they can't find two people who can agree on anything that Jesus has ever done wrong. They're trying to bring him to trial and the religious leaders can't find anyone to agree. And they need two witnesses. And in the end, they manage to get two people who will agree to a trumped up So the religious leaders know that Jesus has done nothing wrong. Pilate knows that Jesus has done nothing wrong. In Matthew's gospel, we read that Pilate's wife knows that Jesus has done nothing wrong. Pilate's wife has a dream and in the dream, she's really troubled and she goes to Pilate and she says, don't have anything to do with that innocent man. I've had a really bad, I've had a really bad night's sleep. I had a bad dream about it. He's innocent. Don't have anything to do with him. So Pilate knows he's innocent. Herod knows he's innocent. Pilate's wife knows he's innocent. One of the thieves who's crucified with Jesus on the cross knows he's innocent. The centurion who supervises Jesus' crucifixion knows he's innocent. Because when Jesus dies, the centurion says, surely he was a son of God. Everyone knows that he's innocent when he goes to the cross. And that's so important because Jesus goes as the pure, spotless Lamb. Remember when John the Baptist first sees Jesus, he says, behold, the Lamb of God. This is the whole point of Jesus's life. This is what it's all been building to, because there has to be a sacrifice if there's going to be forgiveness. There has to be the shedding of blood. The whole Old Testament system of sacrifice 
has been pointing to this moment. And if Jesus goes to the cross as a guilty man, then it doesn't work. Uh, in the Old Testament, one of God's criticisms of the, uh, of the, of the Israelites before um, the exile was that they were, bringing to, uh, they were bringing to Jerusalem sacrifices that were blemished. They were bringing to, the, to, the, uh, to Jerusalem sacrifices that weren't perfect. And they were thinking, well, it doesn't matter. God won't mind. Uh, it doesn't matter. We can bring a, we'll bring a, you know, we'll, we'll look at our sheep and we'll offer God a, you know, a, a blemished one, an imperfect one. We'll keep the good ones for ourselves. And in the, the Old Testament prophets condemn the Israelites for that. They say, Is God, does God not deserve a perfect sacrifice? And Jesus goes to the cross as the perfect sacrifice. He never sinned. He never did anything wrong. And everyone who puts Jesus on the cross, they know it. But it's God's plan that it should happen. And so God's plan is fulfilled. And Jesus goes to the cross. But um, Pilate is trying to release him. He knows that, you know, he just, he knows that Jesus hasn't done anything wrong. He says, I'll punish him and then I'll release him. And they cry out, Away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Pilate appealed to them again. They kept shouting, crucify and crucify the third time. Why? What crime has this man committed? I found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Uh, therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. Uh, Pilate is desperately trying to free Jesus. And in the end, um, uh, Pilate can't do it. Uh, because, uh, again, in the other gospel accounts, we read that the, the religious authorities say, well, Jesus is claiming to be a king. If you don't do anything about it, you're no friend of Caesar. And that's, what, that's why Pilate can't, in the end, free Jesus. In the end, he has to go along with the crowd, because if he doesn't, uh, he'll be in trouble with Caesar, and he doesn't want that. So in the end, it's because of things that Pilate has done in the, in the past, he's kind of hum, hamstrung himself and in the end he has to go along. Their shouts prevailed. But again, interesting that Jesus, the innocent man, goes to the cross and Barabbas, who is guilty, who's deserving of death, who's led an insurrection, who's murdered, he's the one who's set free. Pilate decides, verse 25, Pilate Release the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. So the innocent man goes to the cross, and the guilty man gets set free. And that's the gospel, isn't it? It's kind of the gospel in microcosm. That's, you know, that's the reality for us this morning. We're here this morning as, as Christians who follow Jesus, and what's the thing that we... What's the thing that we understand? It's that an innocent man went to the cross so that we, the guilty, could go free. We might not have led an insurrection, we might not have murdered anybody, but we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. We've all, you know, done things deserving of death. You know, we deserve to be on the cross, but we're set free because an innocent man went. This is why it's so significant, so important that... Everyone knows that Jesus is innocent when he goes to the cross. And a guilty man is set free. In a few moments, we're going to share together in this uh, bread and wine, in this meal that reminds us of what happened on that first Good Friday. Then an innocent man went to the cross in order that we, the guilty, might be set free. Is that lovely? Um, I was hoping we could sing it this morning, but it's not on 
It's, it's not in the, the icing app. You know, my Lord, what love is this? You know, the, you know we go free. Is that lovely refrain? You know, the guilty go free. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And that's the thing that changes, that changes our lives. And so in this, this moment where darkness is reigning, next Sunday, um, I'm away next Sunday, I'm preaching up at Copthorne, but Alan uh, will be preaching next Sunday where we come to the crucifixion. Uh, the moment where it seems as if death has won the day. But it's in that moment that death actually loses. The innocent dies in order that the guilty might go free. Uh, Let's pray together for a moment and then we'll turn to our communion. Let's pray and just take a moment to allow these truths to to sink in. Uh, The things that we've become so familiar with because we read them so often. Just the reality of Jesus being abandoned and alone. As darkness appears to reign, everyone arraigned against him. An innocent man going to the cross to die in our place in order that our sins might be forgiven and in order that we might be set free.